0: Concepts Explained. This is your host, Dr. Jack. Think of me as your personal psychology professor. I've been teaching psych classes for quite a long time, now at least a couple of decades, and now I teach mainly online. Recently, I had a nice conversation with Dr. Gerald Droz, and he's based out of Atlanta. He's a private practitioner who actually runs four clinics with 30 clinicians. And he reached out to me because he uh, published a book. And uh, at first I thought, well, a private practitioner would probably write about, you know, a psychologist probably write about, you know, an autobiographical, nonfiction kind of memoir. But it was actually a fiction memoir, he calls it. And I really enjoyed this conversation. It was a lot of fun because that's also my background in counseling psychology. And so we not only talked about his book, the process of writing it, uh, what was the inspiration for it, and also you know my thoughts and, and sort of our thoughts about certain characters within the book. And then we took a deeper dive into the world of clinical psychology in terms of, for example, how the pandemic has transformed clinical practice. And since and it's a nice for me to have an opportunity to speak to someone who's a clinician and find out what has changed over the years or his own approach to clinical work and counseling. And so I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I think if you're a beginning undergraduate student, high school student who might be thinking about maybe becoming a psychotherapist, you know, I think you'll get the uh, feedback you need through this conversation I had with Dr. Droz in terms of whether or not there's a need. I think you know the answer to that and whether or not this career is rewarding, which I think you'll probably know the answer to that as well. All right, so I'm going to play the interview for you guys. Let's go and get started. Uh, today I have Dr. Gerald Droz in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm very happy to have actually you found me right That's right. yeah, <laughs> yeah you sent me an email and I and I do get these emails from time to time but a lot of times they're very spammy they don't even address me by name they're just trying to shoot out a marketing email but you actually found me and talked to me and we've been exchanging emails forever it seems like it just trying to get this set up yeah right. so I'm very happy to have you on the on the program today and uh and I want to start off like with my, all my guests in the psychology profession as your origin story. How did you actually, when, or how or when did you get that spark and decide to go into the field of psychology?
1: Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to answer that question. Uh, that, uh, I think the place that it actually starts for me uh, was probably in my late, or mid teenage years 14 15 16 somewhere around there uh i was watching a show that uh, you're too young to remember it was called the phil donahue show oh
0: no no i remember clearly actually oh, I'm, 50, really? I'm about okay. to be 55
1: yeah yeah oh, okay so, so you're, uh you're still significantly younger than me but okay so you do <laughs> remember him and and he was uh in the late 60s he was the first person he was kind of uh, for the younger generation I mean kind of an Oprah mm-hmm. figure in that he sort of addressed mental health issues and like uh, you know, he was the first one to talk about alcoholism right. on TV and sex therapy on TV and uh, and I was mesmerized by his shows he brought on psychologists just like you're doing you know to kind of explore some issue or, or get to uh, uh, get to talk about psychotherapy and And of course, growing up in Charleston, South Carolina uh, in a kind of middle class family, there was no psychotherapy. Uh, I didn't even know it existed until I was watching it on TV and I thought that's what I want to do. You know, I mean, I really this is the stuff that really interests me and the people that were doing it seemed real uh, interesting and and I, then I went to undergraduate, and I wasn't a great student at the time, because <laughs> I wasn't all that focused, or I wasn't a great student in high school. So I actually uh, bounced around in different majors mm. until uh, until really I decided I'm going to do this. Yeah. And I went back and got my undergraduate degree in psychology, um, and then I uh, got into the uh, PhD program. But it was,
0: yeah. so. so- when you say you bounced around, does that mean you changed your major quite a bit?
1: Yeah, yeah. I was mm-hmm. actually a theater major. Oh, uh, interesting. And then, <laughs> and then I was, uh, and I got my undergraduate degree in political science, mm. and went to graduate school actually in international studies. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, and I was sort of focused on the Mahareb countries, which are Algeria, Tunisia, uh, Libya, and uh, and at that time those countries countries weren't that friendly with us. We had, mm-hmm. you know, we were, uh, we had uh, been exploiting them to some extent or with <laughs> others. Uh, and, I, you know, the, the prospect of a job in the diplomatic corps in those countries didn't appeal to me. I was interested in studying it, mm-hmm. but I wasn't interested in actually doing the work once I realized what the actual work was. Mm-hmm. And so then I went, that's when I went back and I uh, uh, took a uh, the core kind of courses in psychology. Right. And because I knew exactly what I wanted to do at that point, I was a really good student, you know, I felt was very focused. Yeah. And, uh, and that's you know, how I made the switch over. Yeah. yeah,
0: I find that um, since I teach for a community college, the older than your average students with some life experience, like you said, have much more focus when they come back to school right yeah. and even though they have a lot of insecurities maybe some of them have been out of school for a while not, not exactly like your experience you were in school in a profession then you went back right. but uh but it's good to see that uh, uh with my listening audience being students of a wide range in terms of high school through graduate school that i've gotten feedback from so i, I kind of have a sense mm-hmm. of who my audience is i want them to get that sense that uh based on what you just said and my previous guests saying that how you weren't a good student to begin with that um we all kind of struggled at some point and made it you know uh, and, and uh through the process and not to be discouraged
1: uh, yeah, when yeah. they get started yeah, there, there are some people who run right down the middle of the road mm. and know exactly what they want to do right. and can be really good students right away but many of us I, i'm sure more than half yeah. People are, you know, are, are looking around and not too sure of what exactly they want to do, and don't have necessarily the confidence to focus themselves on what really uh, intrigues them. Like, like uh, my my sense was it was so hard to get into clinical graduate school that I thought, ah, I can't do that, so I'll do this other thing. But, but, uh, but once I, you know, I gained some confidence uh, toward the end of my undergraduate experience. And then it, I felt like, well, if I, you know, if I really focus myself for a couple of years, I can get into this program. And I did. And it worked out. And, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. And when you wanted to make that switch to psychology, was it always about being a clinician? Or did you have a research interest? Then you kind of moved in that direction?
1: Yeah, I had kind of both. I really, yeah. uh, I, I was actually a pretty good researcher in graduate school. A lot of the students, a lot of my fellow students this was, you know, 30 something years ago. And I think now it's a little different. But a lot of my fellow graduate students weren't that crazy about research, I really liked it. Uh, and I thought about being a professor. Uh, uh, actually, you know, the the, uh, the story about that is, I had to stay in a certain geographic region of my son, because I had a, a child who shows up in the book, uh, mm-hmm, fictionalized. Okay. Yes, but uh, he lived I I couldn't I wasn't as free as some people would be to look for jobs in, right. in the uh, uh, academic world, but but I also really when it came right down to it, and I'm so glad I did it, uh, I wanted to be a clinician too and, and mostly, and uh, it really suits me, you know, mm. like it, it's you know one hour after another and it's sort of scripted. I mean, it's uh, my schedule is scripted you know, I, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing. And uh, it, it just it's a good structure for me. And I, yeah. and I love having com- deep conversations with people. And that's what I do now for a living. You
0: know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's a great segue to since you mentioned it to talk about your book a bit. And, okay. uh, and this is one of the reasons you first contacted me. But um, of course, we're gonna talk a lot more than than your book, but you're a first time novelist. Mm-hmm. So right, and the yeah. books entitled bird, god of land and uh, even though I know you can talk a little bit about where that title came from and, and as well as okay. why you chose to write fiction as opposed to say like a personal memoir kind of autobiographical
1: right it's a you know it's a fictional memoir mm-hmm. uh, uh, there were uh, so part of the uh, problem I had releasing the book letting mm-hmm. go of the book and letting it out into the world this is very personal uh, it is it is uh, memoir-ish, but it's uh, it is fictionalized too. And uh, part of the reason to fictionalize it was uh, because of it being personal. Mm-hmm. And I am, you know, a practicing therapist, and so you know there was some self-revealing in it that uh, that uh, I wanted to fictionalize. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and some, but but actually, I'm glad since I've released it. And some clients have read it and and the the feedback I get is that it actually helps them connect to me in a sort of, in a a Mm -hmm. deeper way and understand the process of therapy better that we're doing. So uh, some of my concerns uh, that caused me to fictionalize it or led me to fictionalize it probably were a little unfounded, but it also gave me some freedom to kind of play with some ideas that that weren't real. Yeah. You know, weren't actual events that occurred, but a lot of the events in the book did occur either somewhat like they are described or, and a lot of the characters come from my uh, uh, real life character, people that I was close to and knew. And mm-hmm. the character Allie in the book is now my wife. And, right. uh, <laughs> uh, so, so it's nice. been, you know, it's been, that's, that's created its own uh, kind of uh, uh it's actually turned out to be a lot of fun talking about the book with people uh, as a result of that. But that was the reason for fictionalizing. Yeah. The title comes from Kurt Vonnegut uh, Jr.'s poem uh, that's in, the, in Cat's Cradle. Um, and uh, it's uh, I'll go ahead and say it. So sure, uh, sure. It's uh, tiger got a hunt, bird got a fly, man got to sit and wonder why, why, why? tiger gotta eat, bird gotta land, man gotta tell himself that he understand. And uh, so, you know, the the bird gotta land is about, in the book is about uh, Stephen, the main, the protagonist mm-hmm. becoming uh, more present, more mindful, more more in his experience. And mm-hmm. uh, the, that's sort of, the bird gotta land is sort of coming to a resting place you know uh but it's also plays on the man got to tell himself that he understand and the notion that most of uh you know most of us are living stories and we believe those stories mm-hmm. we're also asking ourselves why all the time but we also uh, have to settle into some belief about those and to some extent uh to some extent that's what psychotherapy is so that's kind of a uh combination that
0: i like how when you describe psychotherapy in this process uh in the book that it's not so much of a mechanical technical kind of process that there's a lot of art involved and you mentioned poetry uh in the early parts of the book so you want to talk more about that and and i also agree with that as well that that there is this sort of um, intangible aspect to therapy that's really hard to describe from from my experience and uh
1: it's very hard to describe from my experience too one of my <laughs> least favorite questions is when a, a new client calls me and says you know what's your orientation mm-hmm. how, mm-hmm. how do you do therapy how does it go with you or something like right, that right. and i you know i've come up with a little bit of an answer for that but it's <laughs> I sort of answer it different every time, but depending on my mood, kind of. But, you know, I believe in the science of psychology and I I love what people are doing, especially in the last 20 years, it's been an explosion of good stuff coming out of the field Mm -hmm. of psychology. And and I also believe that, you know, some of the cognitive behavioral stuff, certainly the mindful stuff is useful and some scientific validation is good. But there's also this whole host of, sitting with people and paying attention to them and listening to their stories and trying to shift their story some is a major art form. You know, yeah. It's a craft, it's an art, and it's a science, it's all of that, yeah. which is one reason I'm, I'm very excited about even 30-something years into doing this. I still am excited about the field uh, and, uh, and I'm excited about my work uh but yeah it, it's it's artistic in that people if if you're listening to people's stories to me as a therapist I'm listening for what kind of closes the door mm. on change for them mm-hmm. whatever the change they might be seeking whether it's how they see themselves or some some behavior change or some life change but whatever change they what how are they describing it that closes a door and how can I open that door? Or how can or how are they describing it in a way that opens a door for themselves? Mm-hmm. But but that is a very hard thing to put into a technical context, you yeah, know. Exactly. It's very much it's very much like listening and paying attention in a, in an alter an alternate way. It's not just having a casual conversation and listening, but but it's but it's also, it's really about paying attention to people and what the story they're telling.
0: Right, and then putting all of that into theoretical frameworks that, we, that we're that we trained to understand that can help us with, well, like you say, how do we get this person, and I always use the, the phrase stuck, how do we get mm-hmm. someone unstuck? <clears throat> you stuck. know, yeah and, yeah, and get back on track in life in the direction they want to go. Um, because usually yeah. they're in therapy because... Something's gotten them stuck, whatever that might be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And
1: yeah. the book, uh I don't know if you've gotten this far in, but the uh <laughs> the there's the there's both the there's both the real story about a, a an inmate who has himself stuck in prison and he can get he theoretically could get out, but it, it's scary to get out of prison. It's a long story. Mm-hmm, it's in mm-hmm. this book, but, yeah, yeah, I got but, to the but, beginning but of it. Yeah, but it's also an, an abstraction in that we all eventually find ourselves in some kind of prison uh, where there's, there's a way out, but we're narrating the experience as if we're stuck. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what the inmate does in there. Also, uh, as you go through, uh, Stephen is sort of, the main character is sort of stuck. Even his uh, supervisor, his supervisor, right, <laughs> is, sort of, is yeah. sort of stuck in a pattern. And you, you you learn how they're stuck, why they're stuck, and you watch them, hopefully, you watch them sort of evolve into something uh, different, yeah. you know, yeah. unstuck.
0: Yeah. Personally, I really could relate to Stephen's character because I went through that process as well, going through graduate school and going through clinical training, doing my clinical internship. So even though I went the education and teaching route and not straight into like a job at the VA hospital where I was trained, which would have been you know, nice to do. I really enjoyed my training there, working with a wide variety of veterans in, yeah, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, but w- when you published this book, did you have a target audience of, in mind? Was it someone like myself? Uh, because I found like even though I'm many years away from grad school in those years and my training years, I really it just brought back so many fond memories. But I imagine it's also probably great for someone who's just starting out or trying to figure out where they want to go in grad school
1: exactly <laughs> exactly <what laughs> you, I i it. This multi-layered to what i so as you you know uh there's one chapter uh where steven is in a psychodrama group um that really looks uh is more i see it as more for advanced sort of therapists it really looks at how uh people are stuck and how they change and what the internal dialogue, how you can work with the internal dialogue. And that was maybe for more advanced people. Uh, but the book overall, if I, if I was writing it for one person, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was a first year graduate student Mm -hmm. in psychology. Um, because you know, it's about the process of going through that process. Yeah. And, uh, but I saw it as, you know, undergraduate psychology people who are interested in counseling, clinical therapy kinds of work, and up to people who, like yourself, who are more advanced and have some uh, experience. But sort of looking at a, a little bit of an alternative model, excuse me, of how uh, an alternative model of how uh, to help people yeah. uh, through the process of change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I have to confess, I've in the past few years, my daughter will tell you too that I've had trouble reading books, long-form reading, and it could be uh, too technology. much internet. Yeah, too much internet, too much <laughs> yeah. mobile phones. Right, everything is all, all right. fast twitch kind of reactive behavior, and my mind can't. But honestly, and and this is quite a compliment, is that. I could read your book. I, I was really enjoying it. I read it during every meal, and uh, my daughter's really proud of me and can't believe I'm actually halfway through your book. Because <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> she's well, she's you, such uh... an she's such an avid reader. She will just go through piles and piles of books, and my oh, wife wow. and I are just amazed. Like where'd you get that from? You know, we don't really, she, We don't really show that to her that we read a lot. Um, but hopefully, this will get my brain reprogrammed into enjoying okay. long form reading again.
1: well thank you jack that's very that's very nice of you uh, yeah yeah because i didn't know
0: what to expect you know you just randomly Mm -hmm. found me and i was like, okay you just send me the book and i really didn't have a framework of what it was about until i started reading it and then it's like oh i really latched on to the steven character especially during his first uh filmed uh, observation of supervision right where he's with the client and he's just learning how to be a counselor that reminded me of my first year of training uh in the counseling center how scared i was right let alone taping we used to use audio cassettes and we tape it and then play back certain portions in supervision so i think that was so valuable the way you conveyed and described that
1: yeah yeah i i remember well uh sweating as uh, as other graduate students <laughs> and this supervisor were listening to a recording i mean it's a, yeah. it's a very intimidating process yeah it is. but it's also it's also a great way to learn how to do therapy you know because yeah. you're getting all this feedback you can just relax and enjoy the feedback rather than feel like you have to be uh, already uh, a wonderful therapist when you're right. actually just beginning you know
0: yeah, I remember in the Los Angeles VA hospital outpatient clinic, we had a psychodynamic uh, rotation, and it was brief therapy. So 10 sessions, right? So from the onset, the, the patient knew it was 10 sessions, and we videotaped. it. So there were three interns, and we each, you know, uh, then we'll play it with three of us plus our supervisor. And, yeah. oh, talk about just, yeah. <laughs> like you're saying, sweating. But it turned out great. You know, that the yeah, scariest yeah. things turn out to be the best learning experience. That's, that's right, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm becoming a fan now, so I'm really enjoying this book. Um, but I do want to dive deeper into uh, the clinical aspect of things. Because, okay. uh, like I told you, my, my clinical training was back in 1998-99, and that's when I did my internship. So that's 20-plus years ago so in the past 25 years or so and that you've been practicing how has the field changed uh or evolved what were some like the that you can see that you noticed over the years
1: wow well that's a that's a uh (laughs) that's a broad question that has uh uh, so i'm in a practice now with 30 something uh therapists psychologists Mm -hmm. social workers uh licensed uh, professional counselors. So, you know, I get a lot of different perspectives. Uh, I supervise a couple of them. Um, and, and I, I, so I've seen it in sort of waves, you know, the the first way when I first started practicing, there was very little managed care just right at the first part of it. I mean, it was about to the, the, the golden goose was dying as I was starting to practice um and and I, I watched a few people actually kill it the the hospitals that run, run up these huge bills you know and so the insurance companies came in with this managed care stuff you know then i think people people changed it actually affected me to where i was trying to be a little more short-term oriented mm-hmm. uh a little more uh I, it would almost uh, it almost created some anxiety like i have to finish this faster right. or i'm going to get a bad reputation with the insurance people now i will tell you i don't do insurance anymore i right. see people that are paying out of pocket so it's different there're plenty of people here who do are on lots of insurance panels and stuff that kind of fast uh, you know where you have to justify what you're doing and stuff right. seems to have passed yeah. at least around here There's nobody. You don't have to call anybody and ask for sessions or any of that stuff. Thank God. But that was Mm. more in the '90s and the early 2000s. But the act, so the actual practice, I think, is pretty free to do to approach it uh, the way that each individual therapist uh, approaches clients. And uh, you know, of course, the biggest change has been in the last couple of years with COVID.
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to get into that too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, what's happened with that and uh, uh, is just an incredible uh, explosion of need. Yes. Uh, so we have this thirty-three people here, and every one of them has a waiting list that's several months long. Wow. And that was not true two years ago. Mm-hmm. That maybe three or four people would have, you know, a couple of months waiting list or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but now everybody does. We're referring out and uh, mm. trying to stay professional with it. We get so many referrals now that sometimes you get kind of overwhelmed and don't even respond to the person. And we've oh. we've talked about that as a group, not doing that because these are people who need us. Yeah, at least at least give them some kind of uh, uh, place they might go for help. But it's um, been just an enormous. I would say it's it's quadrupled the need. Yeah, uh, you know, I will say some part of it actually started a little before the pandemic. I think the political climate created yeah. anxieties mm-hmm. and uh, uh, agitations with people, and and so it was already increasing to the point uh, of being a little bit overflow. And then when the when COVID hit, of course, we all went to video uh, sessions. Mm-hmm. Some do. More phone than video, and, and um, for I'm your
0: about... for your practice, that was uh, after the pandemic began, right? Yes, that you went yeah. to video. None mm-hmm.
1: of us did. None of us did video before. Hmm. Uh, I, I had uh, I've, I had one or two clients who uh, had moved to San Francisco, and uh, I would see them, you know, once a month or whatever on video. But that was the only time I'd ever used it, and we just used FaceTime, which you know. Right, is, right. Uh, but now you know we're on on Zoom and uh, and and probably half of the practitioners here are still almost a hundred percent video. Mm, wow! Uh, I, I'm back in the office. I I probably see thirty people a week, and I probably see seven or eight on video, and the rest come in in person. And uh, I prefer the in person. Yeah, uh, sure dramatically so some people are fine with the video i find it it's a little more superficial Mm -hmm. like it's a little more i don't know it's just not as there's a barrier there yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. and there's some there's some there's almost a chemical process that Mm. goes on between two people in the same room and there's, you know there's the three-dimensional you know i don't know it's just a little i think it's a little it, it allows therapy to be a little deeper Mm-hmm. But it was a wonderful substitute. And I can tell you, I don't know what would have happened financially to yeah. the yeah. 33 of us if we wouldn't right. have had it yeah. and and the, re- and the people that needed us. I don't know. It would have just been a big mess. Thank God this didn't happen 20 years ago. I guess right. we'd all been on the
0: phone. On the something. phone, right? Uh, yeah. 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 But, the, you know, at, that's really quite amazing that, you know, for me in the education world, we all had to adapt luckily i've been teaching online for years and years so my my transition was sort of non-existent i was doing the same thing working from home but for many people the transition from let's say and i see a lot of parallels doing therapy in person teaching in the classroom then suddenly doing this digitally right and uh so what about efficacy i know i've seen some larger scale studies comparing online versus in-person versus you know different modalities of communication so have you and your team talked about the whether or not this switch to video and remote? And, and I assume that a lot of therapists were working from home right yeah. during the peak of the pandemic. And, yeah. and so, uh, obviously demand is there and all that business wise, but what about efficacy in terms of that modality? How, how has it changed? Is it about the same or,
1: yeah, it's I I don't know the answer to that, mm-hmm. not collecting data. Uh, Uh, we sometimes talk about trying to figure out a way to collect data because we're interested in that. But, um, but uh, I don't know the answer to it. I would say it's almost similar, Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm.
1: but again, it might be a little more superficial. Um, I will say the only, I do a lot of couples therapy. Hmm. The only, it is interesting to be able to, you know, like I can see your face and the details on it, to be able to see both people at the same time mm. on the you know on the little screen in front of me, I can see their reactions simultaneously. And when I'm in the room with them, I can sort of see them out. I'm looking at one, I can see the other one out of the corner of my eye a little. Right. You know, even if they're sitting next to each other, you can't focus as that's much right, on right. both faces. Yeah. So that I would say uh, in my couples therapy, this that that's been a little bit of an advantage. Mm. Because, you know, I can see a little bit closer the micro reactions, you know, an eye twitch, you know, where people sort of, and people kind of signal in a couples therapy context, they almost signal the therapist their reaction, but unless you're really looking at them, you can't see it. But I can see it on the video. That's the, uh, so sometimes I've thought in couples therapy, it might even be the efficacy of it might even be a little better, because I'm able to kind of track some things a little better. But I'd say I'd say it's close to about the same
0: as my guess. Yeah, Yeah. that's interesting. Because I also wonder, this is my experience teaching online, but there's no video aspect of it. It's just, you know, obviously, just email communication, that kind of thing, that uh, whether someone's introverted or extroverted, right, let's say in a physical classroom, The ones that raise their hand all the time are are the same five people who who were more or less more extroverted, right? They dominate the conversation and and the rest are just sort of sitting quietly and they have questions. But I feel like the online class kind of creates a level playing field, whereas someone who writes to me often may be that very introverted person, but they're living in their mind. They have a lot of questions, right? And so that may not be the same person who asks me a lot of questions in the classroom. So I wonder, in the therapy context, would being either being on the phone or doing a Zoom call, I wonder if that would help them maybe in the first session or second session to disclose more because of that. Uh, well, they're not anonymous, but the, the, the fact that they have cool. a little bit of that, you know what I mean? Uh, they're not
1: quite. They're not quite all the way in the room with you, mm-hmm. and so they might not be as. Uh, uh, worrying maybe? about your reaction yeah. to them or it might yeah. not be as uh, yeah. anxious. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, again, I, I guess it's an <laughs> empirical question. Right. And what you're saying is it would even vary, uh, potentially vary from introvert to extrovert, and it might all get washed out in the data if you were looking at it. But there may be people who feel more comfortable disclosing with a little bit of a, a distance. I have found that in the past on the phone when I've done phone sessions. I have noticed that uh, some clients uh, are a little freer talking on the phone Mm. when they can't be seen and stuff. And I've I've had couples say like a a woman uh, will say, you know, my husband, when he travels, he'll uh, he'll have these deep talks with me on the phone. And then we're home. He doesn't do it as readily. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so with the pandemic. Oh, another thing that came up in my mind and and in my notes of things to ask you is, um, does your clinical practice uh, utilize the DSM? uh, Because the new text revision, right? DSM-5TR just came out, apparently. And so, and obviously this is something I haven't been able to follow since I'm not in the clinical world from day to day, um, but when new revisions come out and, and you can tell me whether or not you, you rely on it as much in your, in your practice and the 30 people that you work with or, or that work for you, um, how do you keep up with those kinds of changes in diagnostic criteria or?
1: Yeah, uh, sort of the answer to your question, does it affect the practice uh... When they come out with a newer DSM, mm-hmm. I would say no. <laughs> I don't think anybody looks at the new DSM and goes, I bet there's a ton of wisdom in there <laughs> that will help that will help my practice. Yeah. Uh, to me, you know, and I think to a lot of people, uh, once you're practicing the neat little boxes that DSM creates right. for people, they don't really fit in them. But we use the boxes. Uh, to communicate to other therapists, or for right. uh, diagnostic reasons for insurance.
0: Insurance, yeah.
1: Um, and so, when they change the software we use to uh, store our information, uh, has the updated uh, diagnostic criteria. And so, if you put in uh, major depression, it'll pop up and give you all the choices. And then, you know, if you're really being precise about it, you might Google, if the choices have changed a little bit, you might Google mm-hmm. and find out what's, what's the difference now between moderate and severe or something like that. But most of us, I think, would say those diagnostic, uh, you know, the DSM is useful uh, for for certain reasons. And it also, I think when you're learning about therapy, uh, to learn those categories makes sense because it helps you think, you, you know, you kind of know who you're, you, you can kind of conceptualize a client better, understand them better. But once you get going with someone, a lot of that sort of, what, you know, for me, once I have a model of somebody in my head, and it's certainly influenced by some of the diagnostic stuff, uh, but once it's in my head, then I'm not thinking with it anymore. It's just automatically fl- yeah, really. the information sort of flows through the structure. Right. But but uh, yeah, so it's used for diagnostics. It's used to communicate, and it's not used, I think, for too much else at that point. But yeah, yeah, and does that what, make sense? What,
0: yeah, that totally makes sense to me. Right. It's it's, I think of it as like uh, ammunition. Well, okay that's a bad <laughs> metaphor uh-huh. i don't want to go you know talk about uh-uh. guns or anything but uh-huh. i think of it as uh, information in my bookshelf in my mind that uh-huh. i can refer to right that's available to me to help conceptualize you know what kinds of issues my client might be having but like yeah, you said yeah. that i guess from my point of view like you just said is to avoid pigeonholing someone into these nice little labels and nice little, you know, diagnostic, uh, criteria that, oh, this person is exactly type three of this disorder.
1: Right. Right. right and,
0: right. uh, whereas there are so many symptoms, as you know, just f- are, are shared amongst so many different types of disorders. Right. And, and a person may not have a clear cut diagnosis of one particular thing.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, uh, Oh, since we're talking about clinical practice, this is something has always interested me because I never made that next step that you did uh, after grad school. Did graduate school and, and and I hope it you know, this is not a bad question. How well did grad school prepare you on the business side of running a clinic and private practice? in my exp- yeah, I, <laughs> yeah I was about to say yeah, I didn't want to shame my, my school but uh, you know now yeah. that, that was the consensus was that yeah we, we know all this theory and practice and all that but
1: didn't we need no, a business nothing. class? Of yeah. course we did and I, yeah. I don't know I don't think they I don't think they do now. Uh, maybe some do, but at least the ones that I know of don't because graduate students coming out I, I find these newer therapists a little more a little more savvy but not much. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that we do for them in our practice is we have the business model down pat. You know, our practice is a hybrid between like a co-op and a uh, business and that we share expenses and we share a lot of resources and uh, you pay for what you use kind of. But so we have uh, my business partner and I, who's also a psychologist, uh, we've come up with a business, a way to operate the business, mm-hmm. and people come out and they just fall into it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't have to, uh, you know, the, we teach them some about it, but they really just have to do psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. You know, they have an independent practice, but and they're being uh, serviced by administrative people but they didn't have to figure out how to communicate with the administrative people and set the whole thing in motion. It's already in motion, but no, I had no training in that and really still don't learn, learn by making mistakes and by the seat of my pants. And, uh, you know, I, I do have, uh, you know, curiosity about things and I got curious about how businesses are run and, so I yeah. did get, you know, that that helped me get going. But uh, my my uh, uh, graduate school, I think, almost pretended that private practice didn't exist. Hmm. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> they didn't think we we're, you know, a third to half of us went out into private practice, but none of us had any prior training in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know,
0: I love having you on because this is my opportunity to pick your brain and then to also ask the questions that I think uh, undergrads and graduate students may want to think about as well, right? To consider. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, let me start here is that as a person who runs this large practice, what do you look for in a therapist? If you have an opening in your hiring?
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good question. Uh, Well, we we read uh, references Mm -hmm. and then we interview them at least once, my business partner and I. And we look for honesty and authenticity and Mm -hmm. intelligence. Mm -hmm. If we feel like somebody is authentic, they're 90% in the door. Mm -hmm. Like if they feel real, if it feels, you know, because that's what our clients respond to is somebody having a real conversation, and being able to talk through important things. And you kind of have to have a certain level of comfort in your own skin. So we kind of look for that. But, uh, you know, intelligence is important to us. Mm -hmm. uh, And, uh, you know, uh, and really references. And, you know, you can tell the difference between a reference that says, yes, he completed or she completed this course and was a good student versus uh, this this guy or this gal is just wonderful, and you know, you know, like yeah. there's, there's they, they're kind of glowing. They're gl- they're a little bit more
0: glowing about them.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah you can feel the difference in them. Uh, but you know, it's been our experience. We probably hire sixty percent of the people. We don't hire that often, but mm-hmm. when we do, we probably hire 60% of the people we interview because we tend to like people <laughs> and you know, people with, we, we interview people that have, you know, good university training where mm-hmm. they, you can tell they, uh, they made it through a, mo- at least moderately rigorous program yeah, and, uh, and made an impression on the people they were around.
0: Yeah. Would, did you ever hire people straight out of grad school? Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, in fact, most of the people, I think most of the people who start here. Uh, well, no, that's not true. Thirty uh, percent of the people that start here start as postdocs. Mm. So they come in under supervision. They finish their PhD right. uh, an internship and all, and they have to do a certain amount of hours to get licensed. Right, and and they function as a licensed psychologist under, but under supervision. supervision. yeah. And so, uh, the one of us here will supervise them and they'll, we, we have, uh, uh peer supervision groups, couple peer supervision groups. And so they'll be in the peer supervision groups and, and, and they practice pretty independently, but we supervise them. And then, and then they just, then they, uh, keep going with us mm. after their, uh, supervision experience. I mean, after their, uh, postdoc. But, yeah, so uh, a lot of them are kind of straight out of school.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you use the phrase postdoc. I always equated that with research positions, and I didn't never thought of <clears throat> clinicians coming out being postdocs yeah. as well.
1: Well, in most states now, it wasn't this way when I came out, uh, which I was glad about. Uh, in most states and, and in Georgia here, mm-hmm. you have to have a certain amount, I don't even know what it is, a certain amount of postdoc hours Meaning a certain amount of face to face clinical hours, yeah, which I think is probably good now, because I think university programs have a little less practical experience than they used to mm. you know uh, they they've become a little more heavy research and less practice, and so it does make some sense, even though I wouldn't have advocated for this if I was yeah. on the board or whatever. Yeah. But it does make some sense to have some postdoc supervision. I believe in supervision. I've been in supervision my whole life. I'm in supervision now. Mm. Uh, I've had a supervisor for 25 years that I've been seeing. And I, so I think that process is important for the growth the growth of the clinician. But yeah. To to kind of trap them in this year where they can't really practice. It feels a little turf protecting at some level <laughs> for the for the existing clinicians. But uh but I think that's common now amongst the states to have a postdoc period. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do it at like university counseling centers or, you know, the same kind of places that the pre doc internships are located, have sort of postdoc a lot of them have postdocs now. And,
0: Interesting. Yeah, and uh, this is a question I ask another psychology professor friend of mine, but you're more of a full-time clinician. So I mean, you may know, know the answer a little bit more is since licensures are state or uh, by state. Uh, how and then now you have these online counseling companies, right, therapy, uh, or even in your practice. What if someone from a neighboring state or like myself from Texas, you know, would you accept any clients from outside the boundaries of the state because of licensing reasons. Uh, How has that evolved over time? Or has it changed due to the pandemic? Have the rules changed a little bit? Because of that?
1: The rules did change during the pandemic and are still changed in most states. It used to be in a state by state. uh, For instance, I mentioned somebody in California that I see that used to be here. I can do 24 days of psychotherapy in California, without being licensed in california oh, i think it's 25 might be 24 but uh and a lot of states have that and mm-hmm. that means uh uh even though i'm here right it's where the client is that count right. so the clients right. in california so i'm practicing in california, california uh, yeah. and now during the pandemic a lot of states lifted those uh cross state uh-huh. lines things interesting and uh uh, they haven't, a lot of them haven't changed back yet. I don't know if they will. Yeah. But there's also something now, I haven't gotten it, uh, uh, but there's also something um, that you can get. I'm not sure what it's called, but it's like a, a, a it's not a federal license. Yeah. yeah but yeah. There, there's a certain licensure you can get that say 25 of the 50 states honor. Ah. So, so, and that feels like that could be the future right. where some of this sort of, you know, you can't practice in South Carolina if you're in Georgia, you know, yeah. some of that stuff goes away. Uh, I believe that is the future. And yeah. certainly there'll still be a lot of video uh, therapy, but those online counseling things, uh, programs, I think that they do it where... Uh they only refer, if you're in Georgia, for instance, right. or Texas, they only refer to people uh, in the state In the state, yeah. for that very reason. And they yeah. may have stopped that. They may have expanded that during right. the, uh, but, but yeah, those cross state lines, things are pretty, uh, pretty serious. You know, yeah. I mean, a lot of states take that very seriously. Yeah. I guess they and each want to
0: protect their own turf in a, in a sense.
1: Yeah. 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 And they feel like they're protecting their citizens. Some from some things. I, it doesn't make total sense to me, but I understand some of it, yeah. but it does feel like some of that is falling away with the video and, and the need, you know, there, yeah. uh, there are people like in small towns, Right. you know, and recognizing that, you know, and, and you can have expertise, you know, I do sex therapy. There aren't that many mm-hmm. sex therapists. If you're in a small town in New Hampshire, sex therapist might be 200 miles away or they can just sign on video with me i mean i don't do that but 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 that would be a way that uh it could increase the uh uh availability of services you know
0: yeah and given the skyrocketing demand this is now a great field to go into
1: it really is yeah i i i said this we just had a uh our annual meeting i I am so excited about it's like it's like psychology, psychotherapy uh, for the future. Because uh, like I have one of, I have three boys and the youngest is 21. And mm. I was with him and some of his friends. And they were all talking about their mental health and what they do for their mental health. And oh, I go running I run every day, no matter yeah. what, because it makes me feel good. And everybody is now tuned in to their mental health and talk about it. You yeah. know, now, there's yeah. not that's not everybody. In, Country, but yeah. but that is th- this younger generation sees it as something that not to be ashamed of, something right. to be uh, something to be working on and growing and evolving, and our profession is part of that. You know, it's yep. not all of that, but it's part of that. And uh, I think it's I think uh, there's going to be a great need for psychotherapists in the future.
0: Yeah, I do feel like we've turned that corner of reducing that stigma of talking about mental health um Definitely. and as an indie podcaster i'm in these you know indie podcast online groups and there's so many that are just out of the woodwork and say oh yeah my podcast about mental health you know i talk you know you know they have yeah. couples who are out there just talking about their stuff and and like you said they're yeah. just much more free to talk about it yeah. 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 Uh, than yeah. before it's certainly when i was growing up
1: yeah. yeah 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 it's been gradual and now all at once it feels different yeah yeah
0: yeah uh-huh. Okay, so what other, uh, just to finish up here, we're running close to our time limit, is okay. what other passion projects do you have going on now? I'm sure your clinic work keeps you plenty busy, and, uh, but do you have other books in mind that you wanna write, you know, in terms of your writing career? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, my passion project, uh, projects uh, right now are having fun mm. and uh, traveling and i do have an idea or two for books but it's such a sacrifice you know (laughs) and and once you start doing it it kind of takes over some or once i start doing it it'll take over some and so i started playing with an idea and writing some about four or five months ago and i sort of stopped and i thought "Eh, i might get back to this and i might not you know yeah I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm older and, uh, my wife and I have a lot of fun together and, uh, you know, I have friends I have fun with and I just, Mm -hmm. I want to do more of that. Yeah. Uh, and I might write something, but uh, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm part of a traveling nomadic family as well. And, uh, so Mm -hmm. what, what kind of places are you thinking about going to in the near future or down the line?
1: Well, I, I've had two trips canceled recently. Uh, you <laughs> That's know, <too> uh, bad. <laughs> o- o- over the over the pandemic, I had big plans in Italy, and I've been there before. But uh, we were mm-hmm. going there again, and then toward the I don't know six months ago or something, we were we had a we were going to hike through Switzerland, and the delta variant hit then so we had to cancel that yeah Uh, we are going to bermuda but that's that's sort of uh it's our 30th anniversary and we're going there just to kind of relax and hang out but uh but you know i i don't know you you mentioned thailand that's (laughs) the the vietnam thailand the asian Mm -hmm. uh smaller countries in asian asia or less known countries in asia let's put it that way our countries I'd like to visit and spend yeah. some time and tour yeah. around. And...
0: One country that, and I'm totally 100% biased, that flies under the radar for most Western tourists is Taiwan. Taiwan. And uh, Yeah, because okay. we yeah. lived there for a couple of years, and I'm Taiwanese-American, and I can tell you that it, it's it's an amazing experience, and the Taiwanese people are so friendly. Now, it's not a country where most people speak English, so but... Mm. If you're standing anywhere, it looks like you're a little bit lost. People will come up to you not speaking English and try to help you out. I swear yeah. that is that part is very real. Well, and, Jack, I'm uh... going there. That sounds great.
1: <laughs> that really does sound great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. OK. Well, thanks for your that's time. the kind That's the kind of com- country that I want to go to. Places that I don't yeah. even know how they work, but get right. there and sort of find out, you know
0: yeah and yeah. that's a whole yeah. another episode altogether is sort of overcoming our fears because that's why a lot of people even some of my close friends and family don't travel to places because they'll, they'll say well they don't speak english there and or they only like three types of food and <laughs> you know yeah. and that yeah. holds them back from these kinds of yeah. experiences well i've enjoyed the hour i appreciate your time i finally had a chance to talk to you and again, Dr. Droz's book is Bird got a Land. And I promise you I'll finish it within uh, before my 55th birthday is coming up. And uh, oh, so good. thanks for your time again. Well,
1: I really enjoyed it, Jack. Thanks so much for having yeah, me. I appreciate yeah. it.
0: And hopefully we can stay in touch.
1: Yep, yeah, let's <laughs> yeah. do that.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. All right.